Welcome to the Evolution of Innovation podcast, supplying you with the tools and insights to access your business's full potential. Hi, everybody. This is Sean Mader. Before we jump into today's conversation with Rita McGrath, I just wanted to note we had a little bit of a sound recording issue uh, recording online through our service. So I think the conversation will be well worth your while. But if you can excuse a few garbles and warbles in the audio, I think uh, you'll uh, still be in for a great conversation. So without further ado, let's introduce Rita McGrath. All right, welcome everybody to the Evolution of Innovation podcast. I'm your host, Sean Mater, and I'm really excited to have a returning guest, uh, Rita McGrath. Welcome, Rita. Uh, pleasure to be here, Sean. So uh, just a little background, anybody who doesn't know who Rita is, she's got a very illustrious career. She, you're, uh, you're a professor at the Columbia University, focusing on management, innovation. What other, top, what other, other courses are you teaching? Uh, well, really the intersection of strategy and innovation. Right. Uh, you're also a keynote speaker, and you are also an author of two books that are on your back shelf right there, uh, Seeing Around Corners, which I can personally recommend. And you've also got uh, The End of Competitive Advantage. And so uh, welcome. And today we're going to have a, a conversation about the future of learning, training, and development in the in the job place and all of the radical shifts that things are going through. So um, just in the warm up for this conversation, what we've been talking about is, you know, the the World Economic Forum forecasts that we're going to have a net loss of about seventy five to eighty five million jobs due to automation, a uh, uh, machine learning, AI. However, there's a, a, a estimated gain of ninety seven million jobs. So we got these twelve million new jobs that are supposedly also in the pipeline. Is all really expected in the next five or so years. So it's really something's happening right beneath our feet. And the, I guess the first question I have is, you know, you and I who actually talk and think about this stuff, even have a hard time imagining what that even looks like, but it's happening anyway. So how do you talk to leaders about how to even approach getting their head around that so that they could start to prepare? Well, I think the first thing I would observe is that many of these data gathering institutions like the World Economic Forum take the world as is and then change one variable. You know, so I'm going to change AI, gotcha. change ML, or I'm going to change whatever. And they leave everything the same. So the analogy I would use is uh, the Jetsons, right? We all remember the Jetsons from the 1960s. And yeah, we had, you know, autonomous flying robots and robotic cleaners and, you know, magic stuff. But the mores and social conventions of that program were firmly rooted in 1962 when it was created. Right. Um, so I think the one of the big mistakes people make in thinking about the future is they don't think in terms of tech. Packages. They think in terms of change one thing <laughs> and then everything else is good. Yep. So I think that's a problem with a lot of forecasts. So second, second thing I would think about is increasingly, and I do see this as a structural change in the economy, we're moving from value being part of product and service attributes to value being part of interactions and flows of data, of information, of other things. And the reason for that is many. Um, I think that the first reason is things are just so easy to copy now. You know, if I want to copy the attributes of a or Parker pen, I can do that. Um, so I've got to find my value somewhere else. And it's in how that Parker pen is used and who it's been in touch with and how it gets communicated. And discovering a lot of those interaction flows is not something an algorithm is going to do for you. So, you know, what AI can do is show you patterns, right? But it doesn't necessarily have the intelligence to know what they mean. 
And so I believe that as we go through this structural shift, and I do think it's a structural shift, the need for creativity and imagination and pattern recognition and a lot of those skills that are uniquely human are going to create new kinds of demand that we don't really see yet because we're still emerging from this almost factory model of what work is and what, you know, how value is created. I was just talking to somebody about the the movie from the uh, Terry Gilliam movie uh, from the 1980s, Brazil, where everybody's kind of locked in this world where all their technology is actually all breaking down around them. And they're kind of a, 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 at the mercy of their technology that they built. And I almost I kind of had the thought like, oh, we might be in the 2.0 version of that coming up where we will have AI and machine learning all embedded. But if you come to rely on it to do the thinking, it's going to lead to a lot of, you know, uh, resulting issues. So, if you looked at from a leadership perspective and trying to forecast, well, how, what kind of skill sets do I need to be looking for? How do I actually find the right kind of talent? It, it seems to me we're, we're leaving the safe harbor of people coming in from traditional college careers and, and with uh, technical skills and suddenly getting more into, uh, I hate the word soft skills, but those kind of uh, more creative and, and patterning skills. Well, and so I'm just wondering, is, is it, does it change kind of how, where talent comes from now and what we have to be kind of be prioritizing? Well, it should. Um, so let me describe something I think is actually a terrible development in the whole world of workforce planning and management, which is the evolution of these automated algorithmically driven selection systems. Um, and so if you don't match a very specific profile, the computers just throw you out. And frankly, the hiring reps are happy to do it because they've got so many applications, they have no idea how to sort of sort through them. And I think right. that is incredibly short-sighted. Um, there is so much talent out there that just gets chucked out by whatever we think the algorithm needs. And by the way, there's been research done on this, which shows that the people that program the algorithms think they know what a particular job requires, and it doesn't. <laughs> you know? So I think that's one huge right. problem in that we've locked away incredible pools of talent that we could be leveraging, which we don't. So that's one big problem. Second big problem, which is related to that, is degree inflation. Because one of the easiest ways to check out a whole lot of resumes is you say, oh, you know, got to have a four-year degree. <laughs> and so something like some big number of, of minority applicants will just get pitched out right then and there. Yep. Um, and, you know, we forget at least in America, that we have this image of a four-year degree as being something that's widespread. And it is too widespread, perhaps, because really what happens is you got every, for everybody that starts a four-year degree, it's something like 20% that actually finish it. So the bulk of people who have some right. education are not the bulk of people that are there. So you got sort of evil algorithms, you've got this sort of degree inflation, which is meaning perfectly capable people are not being offered jobs that they are very capable of doing. And then the third thing is when you think about the skills that you need, I think companies need to be thinking more in terms of how do I create conditions under which we, the company, and you, the applicant, can get to know each other perhaps um, you know, a bit before saying, okay, now we're going to get married, right? Um, and so I think right. there may be opportunities for apprenticeships, you know, non-abusive apprenticeships. I mean, I don't mean, to, I don't mean treating people like contract workers. I mean, you know, right. for really getting to know one another, doing some joint projects. And some enlightened, enlightened employers are starting to do this. So a couple of examples. Um, some companies, I, I can't remember the name of the company, it might be Lincoln Electric. I'll have to look it up for you. But there's a company that actually created a game 
out of running its factories, which are largely automated. And so they invited, you know, local young people to come in and try their hand at the game. And they had training that was built in. And so you, if you wanted to get better at the game, you engaged in this training and it was all provided for free. Mm. And if you got a high enough point score on the game, you would be entitled to an application interview. Wow. So they're checking so what the, the real, want. real gamification. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but what's fascinating to me about that is they're not looking at some resume on a piece of paper and making a judgment right. about what that says. They're saying, can you actually do this job? Right. No, and I find a lot of uh, kind of crowdsourced innovation challenges become other forms that could be great talent feeders and, and, um, uh, even been working on creating these externships, like these remote internships where you could, people can get, get to know each other and do project-based learning uh, that, you know, it always seems it goes to the HR department, but what if departments were actually able to make suggestions about their own hires and, and be able to actually engage people that way? I think there's a lot of potential to have more kind of collaborative hiring, much less collaborative work. So, so all of this, so I'm really used to hearing people talk about all of this change as everybody's kind of fixated on the technology. And really at the end of the day, these are human beings that have to interact with it. And I just wonder how much, uh, how do you start to see things shifting about preparing people for being able to interact with technology in a new way? I mean, I see things like out there like WalkMe and, and companies like that that offer really interesting ways to go through this. But um, we're now, the, the needs and the skill sets are completely different. We're, it's technology, but it's got to be human-centered in, in its implementation. Mm -hmm. Well, a couple of things. Um, the first observation I would make is human beings are ingenious. Absolutely ingenious. I mean, release something into the world and within 48 hours, people are using it in ways its inventors never intended in any way, shape or form. Um, so people are actually surprisingly adaptive to new variations of existing technologies. And what they tend to do is they say, oh, you know, this thing, it's, I'll make it up. It's, it's, an, it's a smart toaster, right? Well, I know what a toaster is. And I know what being smart is. So now I can kind of figure out how to incorporate that in my life. So that's, I think, I think humans' inability to absorb technology is actually highly overestimated. I think people pick it up very quickly, by and large. I mean, not everybody, but by and large. Um, second thing that I think we're starting to see is the democratization of tech in the form of low-code and no-code applications. And here's yeah. the problem, you know, the, the, the fact that developers, the developer community have essentially had a monopoly over sophisticated software systems means that there's just huge amounts of demand. I mean, ordinary people like Susie in accounting, right, can see how a, a little program could save her hours a day, and like a little automated workflow could do this. Gee, if I could just map this project onto this set of principles, I could do so much more. So people see what technology can do for them, but they, up until pretty recently, really haven't had access to the tools. So the analogy I would use would be back in the 90s, right, when we first started to see things called web pages. Um, web pages had to be like hard coded in HTML and it took you yeah. if one was sophisticated at all. I mean, it could take months, it could take dozens of developers, it could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars because you literally had to like bare metal code HTML to get it to work. Um, and it was all new and everybody had to learn it. And it took very skilled coders to do this stuff. Today, you know, you're a plumber could go on to Wix.com or Squarespace or any of these other sort of prepackaged visual um, design media. And within a day, you have a beautiful web page that 
would would make somebody from 1995 like totally jealous. And so I think it's this democratization of the technology which offers really interesting potential. Now it has downsides, right? And I think the downside we saw was when Excel, for example, first became popular and people started to build these huge spreadsheets, they weren't trained coders. And so they would make a mistake early on in a spreadsheet somewhere and that mistake would you know, get magnified. Right. Compounded, but, yeah. Yeah, so you have to, I think you do have to have a bit of a balance where there, there, there's some quality control. But if you do that, you know, you could really say, I'm now free to some extent from the IT department, right? So I might need a developer to do some of the real backend stuff, but basically I can do a lot of this myself. Yeah, and, and I think that's an underrated piece. I mean, AirKit or Notion, people building an entire workflows just inside their department that are customized but that have completely bypassed the, the enterprise purchasing process and building really powerful tools on some of these uh, very widely and easy to apply platforms. So, so, yeah, so now, so when we get into how this moves forward, you, you have people now being onboarded into this hybrid and remote environment. So we've got a couple competing themes here. We've got the, you know, everybody's talking about the great resignation and this, this really high turnover. And then you also have people being onboarded into these companies who oftentimes never met people in person. So I can't, it's hard for me to tell if this is, you know, these are related and, and causing some of that turnover, but really it, uh, how would you advise companies to approach this so that you're building retention and building, keeping some of that brain trust in your organization? Well, I first think that it's pretty easy to tell when a company has genuinely made an effort on behalf of its people and has supported them throughout this last you know, 18, 24 months. Um, you can see it in the engagement figures. You know, a catastrophically large part of the workforce is either not really engaged or completely disengaged or you know, actively yeah. hostile to their employers. Um, and I think that's something we don't pay enough attention to. And I think a lot of leaders, yeah. the C-suite leaders, aren't even aware of it. So coupled with that, though, is a problem that does not get talked about enough, which is that we have an unbelievable number of really horrible jobs in this country relative to other developed nations. And by horrible jobs, I mean they don't pay well, there's no opportunity for advancement, the hours are unstable, you can't raise a family on it, and, 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 and. And so I think a lot of what you're hearing in this great resignation is people who just kind of sleepwalked into these awful jobs because there weren't a lot of alternatives are suddenly able to say, wait a minute, you know, I do have choices. And, and you know, if I hold out, maybe there's a better opportunity for me. Maybe there's, um, you know, a place I can go. Now, it is not like I, people talk about this as this huge mystery. We know what people want at work. They want to be treated fairly and with dignity. They want to be compensated responsibly given the value that they add. They want to have some predictability about what they're going to be asked to do. They want to have some control and autonomy over the work. They don't want to be micromanaged. They don't want to be, you know, um, uh, sorry, dismissed, you know, or, or ignored yeah. or live in a psychologically unsafe space. I mean, none of this is like some vast unknown that employers haven't figured out. But, right. you know, <laughs> I mean, are you willing to make the effort? Are you willing to commit yourself when it comes to, you know, gee, my bonus could be a little bit bigger, or maybe I'm going to share more of what I make with the guys in the cafeteria. You know, it's those kinds of micro decisions that end up reflecting what's in the employee experience. Now, I will say employee engagement and satisfaction is a huge predictor of customer engagement and satisfaction. And so if you have employees who basically hate you, um, you know, and they're just there because they have no option uh, and they feel stuck, you know, that's, that's not going to make a great customer experience either. Right. 
No, you only get the level of thinking to which you apply to your own employees. And, and, and when we're talking about people, well, this is obviously a big issue now, and it seems that it's going to stay after COVID, which is people literally working remote and hybrid at best. These, you know, the euphemism, the water cooler moments, these mm-hmm. group moments that don't seem to fit being scheduled into Zoom so easily. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I were talking about um, ways of engaging in collaborative processes in a remote world. And I'm just kind of curious what some of the successes you've seen about how people have been approaching that to really build culture, even in a remote force. Yeah, well, I think the first observation I would make is those that are succeeding are being very intentional about it. So they're explaining Mm. the choices they're making. They're explaining why they're making them. They're um, linking it to uh, the the job to be done, you know, to what the employer's workforce is. So if you imagine a continuum that goes from completely independent individual contributors. So um, I'm a patent examiner. You know, I, I, I take home four patents. My job is over the next eight hours, I read them, I make comments on them, and I pass them to the next person in the row. Total individual contributor, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not dependent on anybody else to do my job. All the way through to, say, somebody at Pixar or somebody who's trying to sort of reinvent the insurance business. That's an intensely collaborative kind of work. Right. Which that's where you do want people bumping ideas up against each other. And, you know, post-it notes are probably involved in the mix somewhere. And 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 so the individual contributor stuff, I don't think we're having a huge problem having people just do. Right. So if your job is code this thing, review that thing, you know, design this lecture and deliver it yourself. You know, why do you need to be in an office to do that? (laughs) Right? Right. On the other end of the spectrum, though, you've got this very, you know, collaborative set of questions that need to be answered. And like a a good friend of mine runs um, like an incubator for a large insurance company. They've hived this off. They've created it as a accelerator incubator. And I remember about three months into the pandemic, she said, oh, I'm just exhausted every night. I said, how come? And she said, well, you know, when we were all in the office together and they deliberately set up their office as we're all here together for you know a core number of hours each day they designed it that way um she said when we were just in the office together everybody kind of knew what was going on and we didn't have to make a special effort now it's like every day is a meeting it's just one long meeting that starts yep. and, goes and goes and goes so there is actually some science behind this so there was some work done by a guy named david allen at mit and what he was interested in was the richness of information flows between scientists in research settings. And what he found was that if you sort of juxtapose information richness across the distance apart that these scientists sat at their desks in the office, obviously, that the, it was high, 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 and then it fell off a cliff. And the distance apart at which it fell off a cliff was about 60 feet. Um, and so hmm. it turns out if you're physically co-located more than 60 feet away from somebody with whom you need to share information, you might as well be on the other side of the world. And I think this is really a powerful insight for this whole work from mm-hmm. home, hybrid work, water cooler, this whole conversation we're having, because the science basically says, yes, being all together is very important if you need rich information flows and you can figure out a way to get people within that fairly narrow perimeter. It doesn't make any sense when people are more than that distance away. And if you think about that as a design principle, then what that means is your remote workers, right, 
would have to be managed differently anyway, even if they were on another floor. <laughs> You'd still right. have to be very right. planful about constructing information flows. So I think we we don't think enough about what the design parameters are that we're designing to. I also think there's, you know, there's so much of this conversation about, oh, you know, it's the informal bumping into each other that leads to all this innovation. I have been unable to find a huge amount of research that says that's true. Uh, the research I have found says right. when you're in you know, a situation where intense collaborative work is required to produce a creative output, Pixar, I'll just use them as the example. Yes, yeah. the evidence is you can't really do that sitting in your closet on a Zoom screen. Um, but this sort of idea that everybody in the office, like Joe from accounting is going to bump into Zambezi from you know marketing and is going to produce this. In, I, I don't see any evidence that really supports that. Well, but we, uh, on the topic of reskilling and upskilling, you and I have had this conversation about, uh, you know, we have this kind of traditional e-learning experience of where it's just a bunch of individuals sitting in front of their computers, to, you know, not really reflecting the kinds of learning or the way we learn or the way we act. Um, so, you, and you kind of touched on it before, and uh, maybe this is a good time to to plug your consulting company, Valise. <laughs> um, but it's... Uh, we're now starting to have this, these technological breakthroughs of platforms that allow people to engage and learn and co-learn and co-create and collaborate that, and you can speak more to what you're doing with Belize or what you've seen out there, but allowing people to not just learn as individuals, but learn in a collaborative way that has a much faster application to their given work, which is really kind of a new paradigm for, for upskilling and relearning in the, in the, yeah. in the work environment. Yeah, well, so just as the no-code um, movement is really democratizing, you know, software, uh, a lot of these technological advances are democratizing education in ways we hadn't really thought about before. So, you know, if you'd ask anybody in their 20s, how do they learn to do anything? You know, <laughs> stop, number one is YouTube. <laughs> I'm going to go on there and see how right. some other person did it. So I need to change the battery, like in my car key. Well, how did, how did, how did you know, the guy who's on YouTube fix that? Um, so I think the first premise is we've really democratized a lot of sources of what would have previously Previously been thought of as education, you know, real people fixing a sink, you know, putting up a shower curtain, unlocking a car key. A lot of us are now very accustomed to learning those. So I think that's one big development. With respect to the horizontalization again of learning and bringing learning closer to um, the the user. We've, I mean, we've been talking about online education since the days of radio. I mean, people have said, oh, you know, radio is going to undermine education. And then television was going to kill off higher education. And, <laughs> you know, the computer was going to kill off higher education. And, and I don't think that's true. What I do think is true is that if what you want is basic content, that's very easy to get. Where right. I think there's still a role for some kind of guidance, whether that's electronic or whether that's more in person, um, is is putting that content into context. How do I actually use this? How do I build this thing? How do I? How do I? Um, so one of the things I've done at Valise, which I was a company I started about five years ago, with the goal of building tools, because um, what I was finding was. Yes, you have to start with the mindset. And I've done that for years. You know, the books, the articles, right. way of thinking, the research. You have to begin there. If you don't have the right mindset, the tools aren't even going to be of interest to you. But if you don't have the tools, you know, you, you get this aha moment. You go back to your company. It's like, well, now what do I do? So what Belize is all about is helping organizations build the capacity to innovate and transform. Um, and it's really about capability creation. So there are three interrelated parts to it. So there's an advisory part, right? That's the, let me, let me teach you how to do this thing. Then it's got a software spine, which we call the Spark Hub. And it's not 
a piece of standalone software that's going to solve all your problems. It's a way of guiding you through a path. And then as you get to a certain juncture in that path, let's say it's learning about prototypes and you have no idea how to do that. You hop on over to what we call the learning hub, which is connected to the Spark Hub. And um, so you do, you know, a short a series of short lessons on um, um, prototyping. Now, it's not going to make you an expert on prototyping overnight, but it's going to get you enough that you can now go back to your work, say, hey, I think we could draw a stick figure or, you know, we can buy this little kit that'll help us make, you know, a prototype out of Legos or whatever it is. But but it's this idea of being able to, 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 to learn a bit, you know, in your lunch hour or in a spare moment at the end of the day, come back and try it, say, well, I'm, I don't think I quite picked that up, go back and learn and, and sort of iterate between the two. And I think that's very powerful because what, what it solves for is what creates enormous confusion in so many companies. And it could be innovation or it could be any other topic, which is everybody's speaking a different language. Everybody calls things something different. Yep. Everybody's got a different set of assumptions about the sequence in which things should be done. And this at least tackles some of that and it tackles it at scale. Well, and it's structurally designed for integrating into, like you said, information flows. I mean, how much uh, communication just gets lost. A great idea gets, you know, somebody has a great idea and it doesn't go anywhere. So I love the way that you structured it so that it actually doesn't get lost. It can actually be applied. And, and again, it, you kind of hit on something else about it, mentioning prototyping. It seems to me that a lot of the skills moving forward have less to do with schools producing people with technical skills that if we're going to have so much rapid change, the skill sets become more about ability to navigate ambiguity, ability to learn new things quickly. And a lot of that comes to collaboration and co-learning and prototyping and, and knowing, becoming just very facile with that, such that you could approach a new topic. And so I love what Valise is doing and, and structuring something in a way that allows you to kind of do that, um, uh, that kind of back and forth version of learning that it really reflects more of how we go through life. So I, I just, uh, one of the, some of the other, I gave a little um, paradox around this to a group of HR leaders, which was, you know, who, who agrees that our reliance on digital devices has lowered our ability to, to retain knowledge. And of course, everybody thousand percent. And then I just asked them in the chat, well, just put down all the things you've learned uh, uh, off of YouTube since it's done and suddenly got a whole list. And I said, uh-huh, well, what's, these are seem to be opposing here. And I believe, you know, what you kind of pointed to before is people's ability to find information and incorporate. It seems to become way more important than their ability to retain factoids. Yeah. Well, so, it's a bit like the transition when, um, you know, when grocery store clerks had to make change, you know, calculations in their heads right. and then the calculator came in or the automated check register, they lost that ability to sort of calculate change in their heads. But then you have to say to yourself, well, was that really a super valuable skill? <laughs> well, so this is uh, this is the next, the, this is a piece that I've been a little bit, um, kind of the next level of that, which is how much of our work life is actually just dealing with breakdowns, miscommunications, uh, you know, kind of all this work that we just think is work and doing some work around the ability to uh, capture processes of your top performers, things like, you know, organizing an event such that you could actually train somebody and then start to scale some of these skill sets. Because it seems to me that in the future, there's going to be some people with extreme technical skill, but you can't scale that. 
but you could create workflows and use some of this new low code technology to create the kinds of tools that would allow you to onboard people and have them come up to speed way faster. And really what it gets into is, you know, knowledge management and how do you get things at people's fingertips such that you could have a salesperson come in and be good at sales on a very technical product they have no actual expertise in, but still be able to be great at their sales. So it, I'm not, have you seen any people out there really employing technology in new ways that allows them to scale like that? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing um, a couple of examples. So, and this is an older example. It's not even a new one. There's um, a Walter's Kluwer product called Up to Date which is uh, for physicians. It's a mobile-based uh, product in which there's a decision tree where you know a patient can present with certain symptoms and the physician can put in, it's like a decision tree. It says, okay, mm-hmm. you know, chances are it's one of these three things. Here's the next test you should do. So it augments the expertise of the physician with a deep, deep, deep encyclopedia of clinical knowledge. And even better, it doesn't require active access to the internet. So you need to like connect the device up to download all this stuff. But then if you're out in the field or if you're in somewhere, it's like a, you know, a small village somewhere that doesn't have the richness of resources to have access to you know, large libraries, you can be very effective. And that, that would be an example of where I think a lot of these workflows are going. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, part of me want, used to worry that that would start to restrict people's thinking. But what I really start to get present to is if you could actually have that, you know, that it's there and it's, you know, at your fingertips, it allows for a lot more brain power to be applied to things that one might miss if mm-hmm. one's spending time constantly searching for information. So I, I don't yeah, know how much more, you've given thought modest, to that. That's a well, a more modest version of this is the simple checklist. You know, I mean, we used to allow people in hospitals and you know other high risk situations to just kind of wing it and and expected them right. to do the same thing repeatedly over time. And with the checklist phenomenon, what happened was two things. Firstly, you know, you took a time out. You said, okay, let's let's make sure that we're just double check everything's there. But the second thing that happened with the advent of the checklist was the checklist was given to the nurses, so it had a fantastic sort of power imbalance correcting effect on Mm. what goes on in surgical centers and hospitals in general. Yeah, that's, uh, I I forgot about that example. Um, So so when it comes to, you know, I think many companies find themselves kind of in the middle when it comes to their learning and training and development strategies, the platforms they're using, how they're creating content. Um, It's kind of a mixed bag for a lot of companies, but a lot of them are really struggling to provide the right structures to upskill, reskill, uh, encourage kind of what we might call lifelong learning in the workplace. Do you have any kind of guidelines that you kind of give people so that they can know that their efforts in doing that are going to be effective and really serve some of these new needs coming up? Yeah, well, I think the first observation I would make is um, based on the work of Zainab Tom at MIT, who says, if you combine these high quality HR practices, which includes development and a development path and cross training and, 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 and with excellent operations, that actually is a significant performance boost. Um, so I think there's, there's a business case to be made that this is valuable. I think part of what happens when decisions are being made about investments in employee development, as an example, is people look at the cost and that's all they see. You know, they don't right. look at the other side of it, which is let's see the additional revenue that's brought in 
Or for example, Zainab uh, did some work looking at um, a part of Ikea uh, that makes sort of inserts for closets. And it was a chronically mm -hmm. underperforming part of the store, just didn't, didn't perform well. And the normal response for a lot of managers would be to further neglect it, to just say, this is never going to work. You know, it's just not a category that is ever going to be successful for us. And one of the store managers at Ikea tried an experiment. They said, what if we added two or three designers to that section of the store so that when a customer comes in, um, that there's somebody they can talk to. And it turned out that this insight was based on an observation, which is customers would come into the section of the store with you know, what they sort of had in mind, but they would be baffled by what was there and they would leave. Once the designers mm. were there, now you've got someone to talk to, tell me what kind of measurements you want, what are you looking for, um, you know, how long are your long dresses, how, how much, you know, do you want folded stuff or hanging stuff? Or, and, and you had an expert now to walk you through. Sales through the roof. Now, if you think about most of the great customer service experiences you've had, and I'll, I'll share one with you that I had at Best Buy um, a little while ago, I was, as it happens, looking for a camera to, to do some video shooting with and uh, talked to the guy at Best Buy. And he said, well, you know, this, this, this very fancy one I was looking at, he said, you know, that's probably going to be more than you need. And I don't think you'll be able to manage it, to be perfectly honest. It's very professional. It has, you know this, it has all these settings yep. and things. You're going to take a training course if you want to buy that one. What I'd recommend instead is this one, right? It's got three basic settings. It's got four basic focus things. It's got two lights that go with it. Um, and, and then he said, but also in addition to the camera, what you probably want is a good microphone and you probably want this other thing. And there's maybe a piece of software you might need. And I walked out of the store having spent like $1,100, perfectly happy because I I felt that I had been led along a, a, a well-executed customer journey. And the guy had spent a ton of time with me. He, they're not paid on commission. So, you know, his job is to see that I'm happy. And I tell this story to everybody who will listen to it. And I go back to Best Buy as often as possible. Um, so that's an example to me of where we, as, as leaders, like we look at the cost of an employee and we say, oh, you know, can't spend that. That's, if we could cut that in half, that would be awesome. What we don't ask is the cost of not having that successful customer interaction. So here's yeah. another example. Um, you know, if you take internet shopping, 64% of all items placed in internet shopping bags or shopping carts are abandoned. 64%. So think about that. Your marketing people have spent all this money getting the customer to your site. Your technical people have done all this work to sort of lay out the products attractively and make sure the pricing's up to date and make sure that when you click, Certain things happen. Huge amounts of work, right? Your operations people have got all your pipes up and running and all this work. You get the thing in the bag. So a customer is actually willing to plunk down money and buy this thing. And then something happens to get in the way. And I would ask you who in, and I would ask your listeners, who in your organization is attuned to that? You know, who is saying, wait a minute, why did, why, why did this person not complete their purchase? Oh, the delivery was too late. I need it next week. I, I can't mm. wait for it. Or I didn't know you were going to charge me a delivery fee. Or, oh, um, you know, now that I'm looking at it, uh, I, I really don't need two of those. I just need one. And, 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 you know, all these different right. things. From the customer point of view, those are as much a part of the purchasing and usage experience as picking the thing and paying for it, right? And yet as leaders, we don't think about that. And that's where your person on the customer interface is enormously valuable. Yeah. And I, and that seems to be, you know, uh, making our, our, again, the focus tends to go towards tech, but really what we're talking about is making our employees 
more human humans and making them way more sensitive and uh, kind of learning about how to actually look at a customer journey and the empathy building and all of these kinds of things that don't fall into our traditional, you know, e-learning and our, our, you know, kind of hard to do Mm -hmm. that dovetails over into um, I've heard a lot of resignation about like millennial turnover, which was already a topic well before COVID and our statistics are climbing. Mm -hmm. If leaders are really looking at this uh, or cynically at the need to improve employee experience and employee development, you kind of said it before it goes back to that's going to reflect in your customer development, but it really does change the mindset for how employers need to be thinking about their business model and where they really are putting their money. Um, so do you see people starting to shift over to seeing that relationship between developing their employees and having a, a, a direct correlation to their, their end sales? Um, it's a very mixed bag. You know, there are some employers that, yes, they're really trying to make strides in that direction. You know, Amazon, after pretty much taking a shellacking for nearly having a union drive and being in the paper for you know horrible conditions for their drivers and all this stuff, after really getting you know a punch on the nose PR wise, they're now saying no, no, we want to be a great employer. This is going to be how good things are. So you know we'll see if they follow through. If they make a commitment to do it, they're the kind of company that I think will. Um, I still think we see far too many organizations where you know people are just like Kleenex, you know, and uh, one comes in, another leaves. And the usual sectors, you know, the low skill, although essential sectors um, are not, people haven't really seen the light, but there are some shining examples. I mean, one case that a lot of us have been studying for some years now is um, Case of Gravity Payments and their CEO, Dan Price, who basically set a $70,000 minimum floor, minimum wage for his company. And everybody on the planet kind of went, what are you talking about? That mean, like, that's executive type salary. And he had worked with a bunch of his people and said, look, you know, if I'm going to raise a family um, on basically one income, that would be the absolute minimum you would need to have a middle-class life in America. Um, and he said, that's the kind of company I want to build. And so he, he, cut his own salary. He rejiggered his operations. There was a lot of backstory drama behind it. But today they're growing like gangbusters. Their churn is like nothing. Who's going to leave that company? I was going to say, keeping all that brain trust and expertise building over time must be a a factor that few companies have it up. But he's also learned, and it's a sort of a social experiment, he's also learned people are having families, people are buying houses, people are putting down roots, people are making commitments. And I don't, I don't, I don't think we need to go back to the 50s. I mean, there's a lot of things that are much better in the workplace today than they were then. But I think this idea that there is a mutually supporting relationship between companies and their people is an idea that, you know, all too many organizations just don't think that. Yes. And we can hope that, you know, we're we're on our our way and it's going to look different. Like you said, it's not, we're not going to be going back, but there are ways that to build these mutually beneficial kind of ecosystems beyond the, the company itself. And I know we're all kind of groping our way through it. I'm going to challenge you. Oh yeah, it, go for right? it. Which is um, okay. So uh, there's been three or four articles in the last few days about how young men are not going to college. Uh, you know, they feel yes. lost. They're not there. Some colleges have like 60%, 70% female enrollment. 
at the same time, we've learned over the last 18 months, it's really, really hard for women to function in an executive capacity when there's just no support for anything at home. So here's this fascinating conundrum, which employers are going to be looking at. Like not not like 50 years from now, like in the next four years, when those young people start graduating and entering the working pool, you've got the best talent that's the most constrained. Yes. Well, that would suggest that it's going to have to shift towards more family-centric work systems. And and yeah, that's that's gonna be a whole other it's fascinating to see how quickly it's evolving. I mean, it's uh, I'm I'm always looking for the bright spots, and and I appreciate you know you I can kind of bring you any topic, and and it's always going to be fascinating. Uh, oh, by the way, I should tell people uh, you have a few other ways that people could connect with you uh, and hear more because I, I you really do cover such a, a wide array of spectrum uh, of topics, and you have such an amazing guest. Do you want? Would you like to just tell people other ways that they can see? So um, one of the things I started during the pandemic was uh, Friday fireside chats with all kinds of fascinating people, um, authors, educators. I had a beekeeper on once, uh, big thinkers, um, entrepreneurs, people that are company executives. Um, they typically happen on, on a Friday, typically at 11 o'clock, unless we've got West Coast people that are involved. Um, and they're free. So just uh, go to RitaMcGrath.com uh, slash events, and you'll see all the upcoming ones listed. And those happen not every Friday, but many Fridays. And you're welcome to drop into the live show, or it's recorded, and we have them up on YouTube. Uh, I also publish a weekly kind of roundup of things I think are interesting. Uh, in You might think of them as almost little mini lessons, and I, I call them Thought Sparks. And those, again, are on my website. They're also on LinkedIn, Medium, and Substack. And again, those are free. So that's every Tuesday. And if you subscribe uh, on Substack, uh, we'll bop them right into your newsletter. Otherwise, you can just peruse them at your wishes. On my website, which is readamagrath.com, I have articles and points going all the way back to 2005, I believe. Uh, and they're all searchable by keyword. They're searchable by date. You know, you can kind of browse around in there. So there's lots and lots of content if people are interested in this. Yeah, there's a huge amount. And then also, if people want to find out more about Valise, they can also find out on Rita McGrath. Valise.com. Valise.com. E-V-A-L-I-Z-E.com. All right. Rita, thank you so much for taking the time out. It's great to see you. And I appreciate just all your insights and look forward to the next one. Thank you so much, Sean. Always a pleasure. All right. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on the Evolution of Innovation podcast. If you'd like to hear more, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and also on seanmaderstudio.com. And if you're interested in any of our digital transformation services for learning, training, and development, you can also find out information there. It's S-H-A-U-N-M-A-D-E-R studio.com. Thanks and have a great day.